Um, but I think, you know, the advice to partners is that it takes a long time. And, and also it's imp really important that you get support for yourself mm -hmm. so that it doesn't, you don't start to feel like, well, this is all too much and I can't do it anymore because your own mental health is an equally important part of the equation. Hello, and thank you for joining our podcast, Hope to Recharge, a show that is designed to bring hope, inspiration, motivation, and some practical tips to those that are battling depression and anxiety, and to those that are supporting loved ones that are going through the journey in this difficult time of depression and anxiety. I'm here to tell you, you are not alone, and we will live beyond depression and anxiety. We will share our stories one story at a time in a world of mental health together is better. I'm your host Matana. Thank you for tuning in. Hello and welcome to Hope to Recharge. Thank you for joining me here today. Today, again, I have someone from Australia. <laughs> Australians are becoming so popular on my show and I wonder what it is. I love Australians. I love, love, love Australians. I feel like they're so genuine and so soft and so authentic and kind and I love the accent. So Whenever an Australian reaches out and say, can I come on your podcast? I'm like, sure. <laughs> Even if you want to speak about plants, I'll have you on my podcast. <laughs> anyway, today I have Samantha Sutherland. Samantha has her own podcast as well, a very successful podcast I just found out. She is podcasting about women that went out to work and how they juggle life and work and career and success and probably relationships. Right, Samantha? Yep. So we're going to hear more about that. Welcome to our show, Samantha. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah. Where are you from in Australia? So I'm from Sydney. Um, I live, which is the biggest city in Australia. Um, I live in the eastern suburbs near the beaches. So Bondi is our most famous beach in, in Australia, I'd say. And I live about 10 minutes from Bondi. Okay. Did you grow up there? Well, you know, I actually grew up in America. I'm Australian and I was born what? here. Yeah, I'm Australian. I was born here. But when I was three, I moved to New Zealand with my family. And then when I was six, we moved to America. And I grew up in Pennsylvania, about 45 minutes outside of Philadelphia. Wow. And then we moved to Australia when I was 15. Um, wow. and then I, yeah, yeah. So then I moved back to Australia when I was 15. I finished high school here. And then I did... Um, University. I finished university in Sweden and I lived in London for four years, but now I've been back in Australia for a decade. Oh my gosh. I feel like there's a whole episode right there. Or maybe <laughs> an episode for New Zealand, an episode for Pennsylvania, an episode for Australia and London. And wow. Yeah. So you traveled quite a bit and you, I, that's why your Australian is accent is not as strong as most Australians. Usually it's really, really strong and you have like a soft Australian accent. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Maybe so that's maybe why. that's why, maybe that's why that's very, very interesting. So what is your favorite place out of all of them? Oh, I think of Sydney as home. So, you know, I left America when I was 15 and I am still actually in touch with girls that I was at school with. Um, Facebook has actually been an amazing thing for that. Mm. So, you know, when I was 15, we would write letters to each other and occasionally make very expensive international phone calls. And then, you know, with the advent of Facebook, I don't know quite exactly when, but, you know, probably 10 years ago or something, I started tr finding people that I was at school with. And so bizarre, one of the girls that I was friends with age 15 in America 
we actually were in Africa basically at the same time doing volunteer work hmm. and then we were li- living in London at the same time <gasps> and we were actually at the same event one night in London but didn't weren't in contact, didn't know that each other was there and then years later like connected on Facebook and we're like, oh, my God, you were at that night. That's so weird. Wow. And so then when I went on holiday to America about probably four years ago, I actually met up with her and I met up with a couple of other girls that I was at school with back at when, you know, age 15 that I hadn't seen for all these years. So, yeah. That's but yeah, fabulous. I still think Australia's home. Like I still think I, I love Sydney. I love living in Sydney. What was it like living in New Zealand? Oh, my God. That's the only place I'm I haven't been to. I've been to Australia. Yeah. I came for the Olympics. I've been to Africa. I did the safari. I lived in Hong Kong. I've been to many places in China, Europe, all over the place. I grew up in Israel. Where else is left? What did we do? What did we not? Just New Zealand. Then I did Hawaii, blah, blah, blah. But New Zealand, I'm keeping for a very special event. I said for my husband and I's 50th anniversary, but there is no way I'm waiting for that. I'm going to do it much (laughs) sooner. Maybe when my baby, I have a almost two-year-old, maybe when he is like 12 or 13, I can go to New Zealand. I feel like it needs to be a long trip and I want to really take it in. It's one of my favorite locations in terms of views that I've seen online and documentaries and there's something so raw there. And I can't wait to be there. So what was it like to live there? Well, I was pretty young when I lived in New Zealand. So, you know, I remember like my friend's swimming pool and stuff. I left when I was six. Mm, uh, but I've been yeah. back on holidays a couple of times as a grown up. Like there's really good skiing in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And so I've been back on ski trips a few times and another, we did sort of hide a camper van and went around the country for a while. And that was really fun. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's beautiful. There's a lot of adventure, a lot of outdoor activity. The people are really friendly. Yeah, right. I love it. So Samantha's here. To sh- she reached out to me and I'm so honored that she did. And um, she said she wants to share her journey with postpartum depression and what she went through and her story behind it. And I think it's such an important topic because so many moms give birth and they don't know if it's depression or it's hormones or it's overwhelm or it's just being new to being a mom and losing freedom, losing friends, losing their identity, their body, what they used to be. And and there's a lot of women out there that are afraid to even think about depression. Is it postpartum depression? Is it something that I need to take care of? And it's a very important conversation because women that don't take care of it can can get to a degree that's very hard to return from versus pe- women that catch it early on. There's such a good way to, first of all, the support out there is incredible. The medication, it, there's so much that can be done once it's diagnosed. So it's something that a lot of my listeners ask to hear about. I know that if there are men out there, they probably won't relate to it so much unless they live with a woman that might have gone through it. But I think it's a very important conversation. And it's important for everyone because I think it's it's important for us to understand that our bodies change all the time. Whether you live with someone or it's a friend or it's us, that that we're so vulnerable to change. And we have to be very aware of what's going on. And especially with the birth, 
So I'm very um, enthusiastic to hear Samantha's story and what she can share with her journey because she looked like she completely recovered. If you could see her face radiant, then you would see that she really recovered. So I, we want to really deep dive into it. So if you can give us a little bit of a background, um, how old you are, when did you decide to have your first child and how did everything evolve? Yeah, for sure. So it's just, it's interesting actually that you said that people can feel really unsure whether they have it because it's like, oh, is it just hormones or whatever? And actually one of the biggest indicators of getting postpartum depression is having depression during pregnancy. And I actually think that I had depression during my pregnancy, but it got dismissed. Like, oh yeah, that's pregnancy. Yeah, that's just hormones. Mm -hmm. And so no one caught it until it was actually quite acute after I gave birth. Um, so that's like an interesting kind of point to note. Wow. But yeah, so my story is, so I'm 39. My son is now almost six. I actually was like never super maternal and I didn't know if I wanted to have kids. And then I read this article called Sins of, my, Sins of Our Feminist Mothers. And it was written by a journalist who did a lot of feminist writing and a lot of writing about women in developing countries and particularly in the Middle East and, and their human rights in the Middle East and stuff. And she was in her sort of early to mid forties when she wrote this article and she was saying, you know, my mom raised me to say, you can do it all. You can have everything. You can have a career. You can have a family. You can do it all. And she said she was realizing that actually she couldn't do it all. And the window on her being able to have children was closing and she was not in a partnership and she didn't want to have, she was not in it really in a position to have a baby with anyone. And she didn't want to have it on her own. And she was being told by the doctor that her eggs were drying up and she felt really angry. And I feel like her anger towards her mother is a bit misdirected. But when I read it, I thought, I, I think I might feel like that if I don't make a deliberate decision about having kids and then the decision gets taken away from me, I think I will feel angry about that too. Therefore, that means I read that and I read the article when I was about 30. So then I said, well, okay, well, that means if I need to make a decision now, while I still probably can have kids, whether I want to have them or not, mm. and not just let the decision go until right. some indeterminate time in the future. And I thought about it and whether I, and I was like, I think I do want to have children. Yep, yeah, I'm going to have a kid one day. Mm. And so then at like age 30, I kind of announced to everybody, I'm going to have a child one day. Mm. And my, my, um, the father of my child and I have split up. Um, so we'll go into that story a bit more later. But at the time he was like, yay, it's going to happen. We're going to have a baby. And so then a couple of years later, I had, I had a baby and I actually found the pregnancy like hugely difficult. And I, um, you know, some women kind of glow and they feel healthy and they feel full of love and stuff. And I was uncomfortable and I, ha I had a, um, injury from a, a fall off a horse a couple of years before I got pregnant. Mm. And as soon as I got pregnant, all the relaxing hormone enters your body. And I just, you know, I was sitting on the couch today and I, I went to get up and I was in too much pain to get off the couch. And I had to have my leg taped up for almost wow. the entire pregnancy to kind of hold my body together. And like, that was really taxing, you know, and I went from exercising three times a day, really, because I would go and walk and be like at the stables in the morning, I'd go to the gym at lunch, and then I'd go on horse ride in the evening and to not being able to do anything. I couldn't even walk comfortably. Um, so that was huge. And then um, my sister, who I'm really close to, she moved to Melbourne, which is an hour's flight away. So we went from seeing her all the time to hardly seeing her at all. And the horse that I had been owning had got a bit dangerous where, I, yeah, she had got a bit dangerous. And so I had to sell her. And so there was kind of all this grief. That's and trauma. Yeah, right at the start of my pregnancy. So I, mm. you know, I, I put the horse on a float to be sold and then that 
day I found out I was pregnant and my sister <sighs> Melbourne right in the, that same week. And, and also I had changed careers um, and I found out I was pregnant the day I started the new job as well. And so like just so much kind of change in, and yeah, like you said, it was trauma. And so I think that a lot of that led to the depression during pregnancy, but it gets dismissed as, as hormones and stuff. And then also I had insomnia during my pregnancy from about week eight. So I would be up, I would say two nights a week, I would wake up at around about 11 p.m. and I wouldn't be able to get back to sleep until about 7 a.m. And then another three nights a week, maybe I would sort of, you know, go to bed at seven because I was so exhausted. I was having to go to bed at seven o'clock, wake up a, li- a couple of times during the night and maybe sort of sleep from like three till eight or whatever. And then a couple of nights I was just so exhausted that I would sleep through. But that like extreme sleep deprivation right from the beginning of pregnancy was really hard as well. And then, you know, I was trying to go to work and, and then in the last thing normal to not sleep during pregnancy, isn't the first trimester you're sleeping all the time and you can't get out of bed. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I was very exhausted. Uh, so the first, I mean, I got it from about week eight. So the first trimester, there was only a month left of that by the time I got it. Pregnancy insomnia is a pretty common thing. I think I just had it very badly and for longer than average. Then in the last month, you know, I went into the doctor and he asked who I was and I was like, I'm a bit tired. <laughs> and he said, it's time. We're going to give you some sleeping tablets. You need to get some sleep. Um, and so I think at the late stage of pregnancy, um, they, it's considered okay to take uh, particular types of sleeping tablets and really low dose and stuff. So I could actually sleep. And so actually I found the last month of my pregnancy was actually a lot better because I had enough energy to go out to dinner sometimes with my husband and I finished up at work. And so I was not trying to get into the office and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, the the sort of foundations of a very difficult pregnancy and extreme exhaustion were already laid. I gave birth and birth was actually um, actually quite a good experience. I it, My baby never engaged and so the doctor said I had an obstetrician and he said, well, I can induce you if you want, but I don't recommend it because most of the time when you are induced and the baby hasn't engaged, most of the time it ends in cesarean anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of went away and thought about it, cried, and then was like, well, I would ask Dr. Google as well. <laughs> and the Google sort of confirmed that 70 to 80% of um, in, inductions when the baby hasn't engaged end in, uh, an end in emergency Caesar. So I was like, I've got a professional for a reason. And I went ahead with that. And that was actually good because it was, uh, you know, I have almost no scar. I was up walking the next day. I It was great. And in fact, that um, my baby came out with the cord wrapped around his neck twice mm-hmm. and and there was meconium in the fluid. So he, I would have had it. I would definitely have been given a Caesar anyway. Right. right. Um, so that was actually a good decision and like nice. And I felt kind of all loved up and stuff. But then I found breastfeeding extremely difficult, which I know is also really common. And, you know, one of my, I was talking to some friends about this the other day, and I get quite wound up about the fact that women are given not nowhere near enough support to go home and try and raise a baby. And you don't know what you're doing. And I, I was sent home with bleeding nipples to try and <sighs> breastfeed baby with no support and so the pain you know it's so painful and so then it's hard to do it and it affects your bonding with them and it affects your letdown when you're trying to breastfeed and so that you know it's I actually think it's kind of I think it's a bit um irresponsible to be doing that and then when my son was something like five weeks old I'd fed him one night and he was really colicky baby as well so he cried a lot and he vomited a lot and 
he vomited or, you know, sort of burped up quite a lot of milk and it was full of blood. And so we freaked out and called the ambulance, went to hospital and they did some checks on him. And then they said, well, it's probably you and got me to pump, use a, use a breast pump. And my milk was full of blood because my nipples were still bleeding five weeks after I'd gone home with him. So that was like pretty traumatic. Very. And then, and then, um, then also in that time, so when he, so he wasn't sleeping and I was, you know, having a lot of trouble breastfeeding and just exhausted and everything. And then he was not sleeping during the day because he was so colicky. So he was sort of crying. I mean, it felt like to me that he was crying from 7am to 7pm. Right. And I'm sure that that's not exactly an accurate picture of what was going on, but it was, it was like, I found the days very, very hard wow. and he wanted to be held all the time. And because I'd had this injury you know, it was hard on my body to hold him a lot. And just the whole, it was just really, really hard. And so I ended up going to, I was going to the doctor quite a lot. So my mom was, my mom had been in Australia. We have a thing called Tristillion, which is like, um, it's a nurse that's specifically trained, like a midwife kind of program where they're trained in, um, young babies and how to look after them up to around about age five, actually. So Mm -hmm. babies and toddlers and small children. And she had been a Tresillian nurse when she was younger. And she saw me and was like, this is not good. But then she, you know, her trying to tell me to go get help because you're not, ra- I wasn't rational, you know, like I, don't, I wasn't fully lucid through all this period. What and was so your mother saying? That I needed help, that I needed professional help. Does she, she live in like, Australia? She does. So she lives close by and she was coming around to my house all the okay. time and she's like really helpful and amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't, sort of do enough washing to get someone out of depression, you know? Right. <laughs> and so she was doing a lot of practical help and supporting a lot. But I also felt a lot of pressure to get better, which was not offered by her. Like she wasn't putting any pressure on me. It was just how I felt because I wasn't being rational. And I ended up getting, I went to the doctor. I ended up going to the doctor and then going to a psychologist and they wanted me to go into medication. And I was really resistant to that for some reason, which doesn't make sense to me from this side of it, but I didn't want to go onto medication, but I did agree to go to a psychiatrist to talk about it. And the psychologist worked closely with Tresillian in Australia. And so she ended up getting me fast tracked in so that I could go into the residential program there. And so people go into it for all different reasons. Like you have a child that won't eat or won't sleep or whatever. And I got help with getting him settled in the daytime and getting him to sleep in the night a bit better. And he was a tiny baby. So he's obviously still needing to be up to eat and stuff, but actually then being able to settle him after and, and not having, and just, I think also just having support. So they extended my stay and I was allowed to stay there for something like six nights. Then I went to the psychiatrist who said, you know, she asked, so I, they do, they have a thing here called the Edinburgh depression scale test. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have that in, in America. I don't know. I don't, I've never heard of it, but probably they do have something, but I don't know. Yeah. It, I mean, I would guess it's probably the same one, but the way it works is that you answer all these questions and it's like, how often do you cry and etc. And then you get a score at the end of it. And that score tells them where you sit on the scale and kind of how, mm-hmm. how acute the issue might be. And I got a score of 21, which to me didn't mean anything, but people kept going, oh, when I told them what the score was. So have you done the Edinburgh Depression Scale? Yes. What was your score? I got 21. Oh. And I didn't, you know, I was like, okay, well, obviously that means something, but not to me. Mm-hmm. And then I have an acquaintance who works in hospitals as a midwife, midwife nurse. 
And so she said, have you taken the Edinburgh Depression Scale? And I said, yes, the score's 21. And she went, oh. And I said, well, no one told, has told me what this means. And she said, well. Not even your therapist? No, no. Well, the therapist didn't give it to me. I got given it by the GP and then at like a sort of on the way into Tresillion. Um, and, but I said to her, well, so what does it actually mean? And she said, well, you might expect a new mother who's really struggling to score about 12. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I could see that it was wow. quite high. And so because of that, I got, you know, fast tracked through the program and given a lot of help with the psychiatrist. She asked all these questions and I don't, I don't actually remember if she gave me the test as well, but she said, you need to be on medication. And I, and I didn't want to. And she said, look, I'll, I'll help you. If you don't want to be on medication, I'll help you anyway. And people often come to me because they don't want to be medicated, but I really think that you need it and I think it will help you. So I did agree to go on it, but I would only agree for some reason, again, like in hindsight, the decision-making processes at the time were not lucid. And so it doesn't, I can't explain why I made these decisions back then, but I, they wanted me on a certain dose and I wouldn't take that much. So I would only go on to half a dose. And then it did help. And I, I started to feel a bit better and a bit happier. And then when our son was eight months old, my um, ex-husband is English. And so we were going to England to have a, to see all his family and introduce our son to his family and friends. And, but my, my sort of anxiety and depression started to ramp up as the trip got closer. I was really scared about the flight and how he's going to cope. And I was really worried about jet lag. And, and also I was not having fun as a new mother. Like I, right. I wasn't feeling suicidal now that I was on this small, this on the medication, but I certainly wasn't liking it. And I remember saying, it's going to be awful. I don't want to go because People are going to say to me in that voice, oh, how is it being a new mom and how's having a baby? And I was like, I'm going to have to say I fucking hate it. I wish I'd never done it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then people's faces and I, I was like, and I can't sort of cope with other people's responses. And I right. I'd, you just I'd, didn't want to address it. Yeah. And so as the time approached and my anxiety went up and up and up, I went back to the, I mean, I was going to the doctor all the time then anyway, like being quite closely monitored and I agreed to go on to the higher dose of medication. And so then I did, so I went up and, um, that started to kick in not long before we got on a flight over to the UK. And so it did help and I, everything settled down a lot, but you know, it still, it took, I would say I didn't really start to feel much better until about 18 months. And I was talking to a friend recently who has small children and she, she asked about the timing of it. And I said, yeah, you know, about 18 months. And then she was like, but don't you think that that, I said, I felt it was a really big turning point around 18 months. And she said, well, do you think maybe that was actually more to do with the depression lifting than with, with the age of the the child? And I was like, oh, I hadn't actually really thought of that, but potentially. Mm -hmm. And, and I now really see, um, I have a very close relationship with my son now, but he also, he's, sort of connected to his dad in a way that lots of little boys are connected to their mothers. And I think that that probably is partly to do with the fact that I was emotionally really unstable when he was a baby. So he obviously would have no memory of that. But I do think that those wounds can last for quite a long time. Yeah, Um, babies pick up what we, even in utero, they pick up on everything. You know, um, when I was pregnant, I want to say with my fourth child, it was right after I stopped medication. And my doctor didn't let me take, um, I really wanted to get pregnant again. I'm going to go back to your story, but I want, it's very important for me to share this and um, highlight this. 
I really wanted to have another baby. And I felt like I was going through years of therapy and healing and yoga and meditation. And it did so much to recover. And they said, I think I, and I was really getting off my meds. I was on a tiny, tiny, tiny dose of just keeping me afloat just in case, you know. And my doctor said, my OB said to me, if you do get pregnant, just know you need to stop everything, cold turkey, no more, no more. I said, fine, that's fine. And I, and I got pregnant. It took me a while to get pregnant because I had also fertility issues. And when I got pregnant, I went off cold turkey and I had a horrible, horrible side effect of depression, like horrible. And those few months, I, I, w- I, I didn't trust myself that I won't harm myself because I just felt, I knew it was hormone related. I knew it was fear of what if I get postpartum depression. I never had postpartum depression, so I don't know what it was, but I feared it just because I had depression before and I heard that if you had depression before, um, in general, nothing to do with pregnancy, so you're much more likely to have it after you give birth. And I was freaking out and I'm like, what did I do? I'm so dumb. Why did I, what, what did I get myself into? And I was working side by side with a healer a few times a week just to um, work through my anxiety and depression to make my, me feel stable. One of the things that my healer was working with me on is to not give my baby in utero when I was in first trimester the rejection because she said that even though she's in utero, she's going to feel rejected. I happened to have felt much better in second and third trimester. I felt phenomenal and I was working th- all through with therapists and healers, all through through the last day and right after. And when I gave birth, I felt phenomenal. Thank God I felt phenomenal. But I did go back to my healer too, because I did feel my baby was not a happy baby. She was always moping, always like in a bad mood. And I said, something's wrong. Why is she waking up with a bitter face? And my, I know this is a little bit holistic for some of you listeners, but but some of you can connect to this. But she said, she, you have to reassure her that she's okay in this world, that you want her because she got all those negative feelings and the fear of what if my mommy doesn't want me? So I went through another patch of healing her with me and she switched. And I saw that I was in Israel at the time. I saw the switch overnight. She didn't smile for, I think, three months. That night after I worked with my healer, the next morning she smiled. And I'm like, oh my God, she's going to smile. She's going to be happy. I just saw that switch. You know, it was really, it was really, really important for me to, to go through that transition and, and fix my fear, my anxiety, my depression in the beginning. And we really do affect them. And for six months, I didn't take care of her. I didn't. I, I felt like I wasn't prepared. I was afraid. I, I had a baby nurse that lived with us, took care of her. And then I had to rebond with her. I get what you're saying about your husband, but there is, the, the kids pick up on the why. They pick up on the why and it changes with life. It does change. Think about it this way. If your husband was there for him, thank God he was. Can you imagine if he wasn't? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Really exactly. So what was your husband like to you when you were going through the depression? He was very supportive and yeah, he was really available and he was scared, I think. That period is not lucid to me. Like I can't actually fully remember everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting you say like you haven't had it and you, and you want to know what it's like and but you don't know what it was like. And I have some of the memories I have which might help people understand how I felt were like 
So I felt like an, like a caged animal pacing the house, like bouncing off the walls and that I couldn't get out. And I felt absolutely trapped. And like, I can, I can bring that feeling back into my body still when I talk about it. And I used to scream. So not at my baby, but if he was away from me, sometimes scream with my face in pillows and sometimes just like scream off the balcony. Mm -hmm. And I lived in a really developed residential area. And looking back, I'm amazed that nobody ever called the police. Like I think that those, the sounds I was making were not those of the happy person. (sighs) And I had, because the breastfeeding had been so hard, I got a lactation consultant and she was also a midwife. And, um, I was at home with my baby one day and I was, he was in the bassinet and I was rocking him and he was crying and I was rocking and he was crying and I was rocking. And then I, I almost rocked the bassinet over and I just (gasps) rocked and I let it go. And I walked out of the room and I called her and I was like, you have to come over right now. You have to come over right now. And so she came to my house and when she got there, I had, I had, he was still crying and I had put on classical music and I was crying on the balcony. And so she walked in. Gosh, it's still like it was so frightening. (laughs) So frightening. You were in control of your own body. Yeah. And I remember trying to feed him and and it was so painful and I didn't have enough milk. And so he would feed and cry and feed and cry. And and it was one day that my husband was still there before work and I was trying to feed him and I couldn't. And I sort of took him into the bedroom and just like dropped him on the bed and walked out and like just had to get away, you know, and and like as in dropped him on the bed next to my husband who could then look after him. And I wasn't in control. And, and, you know, the reason that they actually like really started fast tracking me for all the help when I went to Tresillion was I was driving to the baby center. So in Australia, they have these like free baby centers and what each one is like, there's one open every day in a different location and you can go and talk to a nurse and ask questions and get help and have your baby weighed and whatever. And I was driving there and he was in the back seat crying and I was driving and I remember thinking, what would happen if I just went like that? And like in my mind, I just kind of wrenched the steering wheel off the road and I didn't do it, Right. but I got there and I got, I arrived and I was crying and he was crying and she was like, you can get to the front of the queue and like ushered me straight in and asked how I was going. And then she really like galvanized all the help. So while I was with her, she got me to make the GP appointment and got me to make the therapy appointment and got me to call the midwife who the lactation consultant who'd been helping and called my husband. And and then she actually was really wonderful and like rang a number of times after to check up on me and like made sure that I got home okay that day and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's funny too, the stuff that you said about like how kids know when something isn't right. And I was resisting taking the medicine and, and not now I can see obviously that it affected my ability to bond with him when he was a tiny baby. But at the time I couldn't really see that. But what the psychiatrist said to me was exactly what you said, which is when the mother is not okay in herself, children know and it affects your ability to bond with them. And I was like, give me the medicine (laughs) because my own own mother is amazing and has been so helpful and wonderful. Um, But she has had depression and anxiety for a lot of her life. And I can see how her insecurities have affected her ability to bond with her children. And it's maybe a bit different as I'm an adult. And, but as a kid, it definitely affected it. You know, I was much, much closer with my dad. And so knowing that and having experienced exactly that myself, I was like, I don't want that. Give me the medicine. Wow. I'm shocked that you didn't take the medicines right away, knowing that your mother had the history. It just never even occurred to me, to be honest. And your mother said to you, take the meds, you'll feel better. 
Uh, I don't remember if she said that, but if she had tried to tell me what to do, I wouldn't have listened anyway. I wouldn't have listened to anybody, you know, so I don't think, I don't think it would have been helpful to her to say that. Were you living in shame and of the stigma, what people will say, or did you tell everybody what you're going through? I told everybody. I told everybody. That's an interesting question, actually, because I knew that I was not well, and I knew that I was acting um, like irrationally and also not contacting people and kind of isolating myself, which is a typical thing that people who are depressed do. I knew that I couldn't, I had no capacity to handle anybody else's emotions around me not being vibrant and happy or not meeting up with them or whatever. Like I had no, I didn't have capacity to deal with that. So I was like shouting it from the rooftops. Like I just told everybody I have personal depression. Because then if they couldn't understand that I could, didn't have the energy to go to a party, whatever, well, then that's their problem, not mine. Right. And the interesting thing was that when I started to tell people about it, so many people were like, oh, me too. Oh my exactly. God. My wife had it too. Mm. And we had no idea. But yeah, us too. Right. And I found that really amazing because when you're in that state, you need support, but because mm-hmm. there is so much stigma surrounding it, people don't talk about it and they keep it. It's like their dirty secret and they don't want to tell anyone about it. But in fact, telling people is the only way to get the support that we actually need. Exactly. Through exactly. So I actually wrote a blog about a lot of what was going on when it was happening. Um, and that like a number of women, um, like friends, mainly or like, you know, friends of friends, or whatever, who, who later said to me, like, thank you so much for writing that. It really reflected what my experience was like and what that first year is like and how hard it is. And yeah, so I'm glad that I told people about it. Why didn't anybody tell you to stop nursing? I don't know. The, so the lactation consultant, she, I mean, I wouldn't use the language she told me to stop breastfeeding, but she, she said, um, she asked straight away how I felt about formula. And then I said, I didn't want to stop breastfeeding, but I was okay with the idea of formula. And so she suggested that I do a top-up feed. So I did all the, all the feeds were breast milk, like breastfed until at, at like nine o'clock at night, I'd give him a bottle mm-hmm. and that helped him sleep through the night more. And it just helped him not be quite as hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was very good advice. It's funny actually, because looking back on that, that was one of the things that was really irrational. So I remember one of my best friends, she doesn't have kids, but that doesn't make any difference. Like she, she was like, why don't you just stop breastfeeding? And I can remember going, oh, just give it one more try over and over. Oh, just try one more time. I think in Australia, there is probably quite a lot of pressure to breastfeed Mm -hmm. that, yeah, culturally, I think that that's sort of what people are expected to do. And it's not that you're not supposed to formula feed, but there is still a lot of the kind of breast is best rhetoric Mm -hmm. here. Um, So that was probably part of it. Then actually, what you know, once I got the once I got it and and I could do it and, and he was latching properly and feeding properly, I actually did really enjoy that time mm. with him because then it was, the it was the early, yeah, exactly. The bond, it was the early, it was probably like two months. It was very hard mm-hmm. and then got here after that. Um, and also, you know, actually for, for my ex-husband, that period in terms of the feeding, I think actually was quite good because what, I, because it was so painful to feed him, I actually did quite a lot of pumping and then would bottle feed him. 
And the, my ex then got to do a lot of the bottle feeding, you know, and so he had time with him really close as a tiny baby that a lot of men, if you're breastfeeding exclusively, the, the partner doesn't get that. He would actually, I think, got a lot out of that. But yeah, I don't know quite why. And then, then it, you know, then the feeding did settle down and I didn't mind doing it. And it was easy because you don't have to carry anything with you when you're out and stuff. And then, but then in fact, when I decided to start, I think I decided to drop like an afternoon feed so that I could go out for a little bit longer, be away from him for a little bit longer. Pretty quickly after that, my supply just dried up. So I didn't feed him. Once I decided to drop one, it was only probably two or three months before I didn't really have enough milk to feed him. Right. Um, Wow. And how did you find yourself recovering? So you said 18 months, you felt like you were a new person, like as if Oh, no, not a new person. 18 months was when I'm like, oh, it really turned a corner. And I feel like my relationship with my son really changed and that I wasn't like there was light again, you know, but it's funny because I was actually talking about this sort of recovery period with someone else recently. And so 18 months, I would say there was a, there was a big change, but then my husband left me when my son was not quite three. We were, you know, we were together and he, like I said, he was very supportive when we were together. I think that the trauma from that kind of event lasts for quite a long time. And I definitely remember at one stage, one was I was talking to my therapist and I was like, you know, I feel a lot better, but I feel like there is like a black pit just behind me. Like if I just misstep one step, I'll fall back into it. Right, right. And and it was really kind of a visceral feeling that I have to keep ahead of that black Wow. And then I remember another time saying that I was feeling a lot better, but that my ex-husband didn't, he didn't trust that I was better. Mm. And so, you know, one of the things that um, he did in in an attempt to be supportive was that he was uh, probably a bit controlling. Mm. So he was trying to manage things around me so that I wouldn't be triggered and wouldn't get upset and you know, that life was easy. So the intention was very good, but um, he was trying to manage things that you can't necessarily manage. Mm. And um, Were you still on medication at this point? Yeah, I was on medication until my son was three. Sorry, what was I just saying? Oh, yeah, so then I went to therapy and I said, you know, I was feeling better, but that my my ex-husband didn't trust that I was better and didn't sort of trust them to kind of let go of emotion and and worry and stuff. And the therapist was like, well, yeah, because, you know, the reverberations of this can be felt for a very long time. And every time I'd been better for a period and then had a sort of relapse into depression or um, anxiety or whatever, because those episodes were quite full on, um, then the time for him to feel like I was better would be extended each time, you know? So like if it was a few months and I was pretty good and then I had a bit of a relapse then, and then it would be six months and I was pretty good and then there'd be a relapse and then it'd be 10 months and I'd be pretty good. And then there was a relapse, but each time, because he could see the time extending, but didn't know that there wasn't going to be another period where I would be really bad again, Mm -hmm. um, which really makes sense. Because as a carer, I think that that's really difficult too because you don't yeah. know when recovery comes right. and you don't know when you're kind of through it. And you can know you're through the worst of it, but beyond the worst of it, it can still be pretty bad. Yeah. And so then, yeah, so I was still on medication. I was trying to come off it. I found it very hard to come off the medication. Mm. And I would find that even just reducing the amount of small amount would, was, a re- was really difficult. 
And so then, um, yeah, my husband left when I was, when our son was almost three. And then that, so that was in August of one year. And in about February, I think I was like, well, this is an awful time anyway. And I've been finding it so hard to come off the medication. So that's it. I'm just going cold turkey. Did you really? Yeah. One of my friends is, I mean, dangerous. I know it was crazy, but I did it. And you're and a single my, parent. One of my friends who's a psychiatrist, when I told her this later after I was through it, she, was, she oh. laughed. She was just like, well, I bet that worked. Because in my head, I, I was like, well, it's going to be hard anyway. So I'll just use this opportunity to come off the medication. Right. And she was like, well, I bet that worked, didn't it? And so obviously that was a pretty a tough period. But, I mean, it was it was tough anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah was like really heartbreaking and awful and but an interesting thing that I've realized just recently is because I so we split up um three years ago almost exactly three years ago and um I was so heartbroken by it Mm. so devastated by the breakup Mm. and so I've done like a lot of work since then a lot of um therapy and a lot of a lot of different types of healing modalities as well so different alternative treatments not treatments like taking holistic yeah really holistic treatment and and energy healing and acupuncture and all kinds of stuff like that and and I realized recently that most of that has actually been focused on the divorce Mm. and that I have some kind of residual trauma around all the postnatal depression stuff and that now there's space beyond the breakup Mm. some of that trauma has started to kind of resurface and I've really seen it like there was a couple of things I read something recently and I was like I just can't even really look at it Mm. and like the the kind of very real look at what postpartum life is like Mm -hmm. I I actually can't I don't you know there's there's a show at the moment called Working Moms it's on, on Netflix and it's about like the first season anyway was about women like right after they're given birth and they're in baby mother's groups and trying to go back to work and stuff. And I, it's a comedy. And I was like, none of this is funny to me. Right. Like I can't, I, I can't, can't laugh. laugh. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's been kind of interesting. I actually just decided um, to try and dig a bit more into the kind of trauma of the, of the postpartum period. You need a um, lot of emotional space for it. It's not easy. It's not easy. You need emotional space. You need someone to support you and you need to forgive yourself if you go down south a little bit and go back into the depression because it could happen. You have to, you have to be in order to really heal. You have to go back into it. And a lot of us don't want to see it because it's, it's so, I, I saw your facial expressions and I had it so many times, so many times, like of closing my eyes and closing my ears and, and going into like a ball, like a tiny little, you know, those little bugs that turn into a ball. Like so many times when I was trying to heal and I would want to go through a topic that was very hard for me, I would be like that little bug ball of going curling up into myself and say, no, 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 no. I don't want to go there. But there's no way to heal if we don't go there. And so many people don't go through the journey of healing just because it's so painful to open that wound and look deep inside and relive it. Because in order to heal it, you need to relive it. That's the irony of it. Like we're going for healing, but we're hurting ourselves so much during the healing process. But I must tell you one thing, when you get to that courage and that strength and the support that you have, the light is so much brighter once you're after 
there's just like, it's like you said, that black ball behind you, you're afraid. I so relate to that. I know exactly what that means because you're always afraid of everything. What if this triggers? What if that? And the, and the what ifs and the anxieties become, the list become bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you're afraid to just be and you're just doing what you need to do in order to get through the day. And then you realize that, first of all, living on medication, as much as it takes away the depression, there's such side effects of cloudiness, gloominess, of fatigue, like feeling just like you can't laugh with a full heart. Maybe you're not depressed and maybe you're getting out of bed, but there's not that extreme laughter and that extreme joy. I don't feel medication can ever get you there because it covers up other things. But for me, medication saved my life. And it sounds like it also saved you and your baby's life because it's so scary, but we're not in control of our minds and what we could do. But I do believe that one day you'll be able to have the courage to do it and to go there and heal because it's so beautiful once you do heal through it. Life just gets more colorful if you can if you can imagine it. Like you you've gone through so much in 6 years, so 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 much. I have so many questions to ask you. Are you prepared? Yep. <laughs> Ready. <laughs> yeah, you're prepared. Wow. Just I'm I'm taking in this whole story and I have so many different angles that I want to go out. First of all, first of all, I want to acknowledge the fact that you're phenomenal, that you're here and you're sharing your story and you weren't embarrassed to share it. And you knew that that's what you needed to share, that if someone doesn't understand, you're not my friend now. I can't, I can't tolerate people that are not understanding. And that message is so important. If anybody gets anything out of this podcast, it should be that when you're going through mental health issues, time challenges, make sure your surrounding is supportive. If they're not, they're not good for your healing. And it doesn't mean that they're evil. It doesn't mean that they're never going to be your friend. But for now, just keep your boundaries because it's very important to have as much a support network that is positive in your life. The other, first of all, I want to go back to your mother. You mentioned that your mother had mental illness. Did you ever fear that you would have the gene? Yeah, yeah. Her maiden name is Meline and my sister and I talk about the Meline melancholy. Mm. And it's uh, it runs in that side of the family, definitely. So my cousins are affected by it, my mum, her brother. So yeah, it's definitely something I've been aware of. Did you have it growing up? Did you have anything that felt like this growing up? Well, that's the thing. That's why we called it the melancholy because it's not sort of full-blown depression. You know, so postnatal depression was different very different. And, and also how I felt post divorce was very different, but I did have sometimes have that melancholy as a kid for sure. Mm. And just growing up through my life for sure. So before you got pregnant, when you were, how long were you married before you got pregnant? Uh, we were together for 11 years in total. So we must've been together for seven and a bit years before I got pregnant, seven years before I got pregnant. Wow. Did you ever have that time of sadness that he saw what it's going to be like? Or was this the new introduction of that extreme sadness, crying, overwhelmed, fear, anxiety? Yeah, no, he didn't. He didn't see that. Postpartum depression was totally different to anything I'd experienced before. Mm-hmm. Much, much more extreme. And yeah, not, yeah, very different. So this was the new Samantha that he got to know. And, and yeah, you know, it. saying that yeah. one of the conversations I remember having with him when probably like 
two years in-ish, I don't know, one year, two years, something like that. And I remember him saying something like, where's where's that like fun, happy girl that I married? And I said, she's dead. She is dead and she is never coming back. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <gasps> so sad. It's so, did you really believe that she's never coming back? I think then I did. I don't know. Now I just think I have a very wide range of emotion, you know, like I'm not, I'm not scared to go into the darkness. And like you said, that means that you can have the light as well. Mm-hmm. And so, so I have both. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Wow. So you felt, but he was still very supportive, very, yeah, yeah. very caring, but he needed, you feel, do you think that he left cause he just needed more or it was too hard for him to deal with the sadness? Or you you lost connection because you were so busy trying to hold yourself up? I mean, it's hard to know, you know, because so much goes into a decision like that, I think. He says now that it was too hard, you know, like we both lost the ability to listen to each other and hear what we each needed and be able to give that to each other. And I think that's probably a pretty fair assessment of what happened. Mm-hmm. But as to why, I said to him, I have said to him before that I think, we broke up because of postnatal depression, mm-hmm. but because he had been so supportive, he thought that was, um, he really didn't like that. Me saying that, I think he thought that that was uh, me suggesting that he left because I got depressed. Mm-hmm. Whereas really I'm saying, I think at all, all the things you said, you know, you lose connection and I had changed and he had changed. And I think it's, it's really hard for a relationship to make its way back from that. I'm sorry. Is it hard for you to talk about this? It is. I'm happy to, though. <laughs> I think I, that you it's know, such an important message. Yeah. 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 yeah it's hard to talk about it. Like, I still miss him and I still wish that we hadn't broken up, but right. I don't have any control over that. So, right. And you are who you are now, and you can't beat yourself up about the fact that, that this is what, is your, what your journey is. And you probably wish you could give him more, but, but you can't. Because depression is so difficult. It's so difficult. I'm wondering what you can tell spouses out there. As someone that suffered so much and tried so much, you tried so much to recover for yourself, for your baby, for your relationship. What? Well, yeah. And, you know, I think I really have in lots of ways as well. Like, I know I can still access the emotion around it, but I don't feel like I'm depressed now. Right. And, um, I, I can remember actually, like I went to, um, I was in, I went to acupuncture. I did a lot of acupuncture over the last couple of years. And, um, I told her, you know, some stuff that was going on. Cause there was like a few sort of life categories where things were not going exactly as I would have liked, but I said, you know, but even so like all this stuff was happening, but I feel okay. And she said, well, you know, you've worked really hard and you deserve any peace that you feel. And I really loved that because it was just so validating because I feel like I've worked really hard too, you know. Oh, it's have, so... Have to recognize that. Was, yeah. Know. Um, but I think, you know, the advice to partners is that it takes a long time. And and also it's imp- really important that you get support for yourself mm-hmm. so that it doesn't, you don't start to feel like, well, this is all too much and I can't do it anymore because your own mental health is an equally important part of the equation. Yeah. You know, I read a thing a while ago where a woman was talking about attachment parenting. So it's, it's a bit different, but it's a similar kind of idea where you're 
giving all of yourself to another person. And she said, said she was so, um, she was willing to fall on the sword of attachment parenting and the styles for her children, but didn't realize that if she herself fell on the sword, then there would be no one around to care for the children. Mm. And I really love that analogy because it's exactly right. Like we can't sacrifice all of ourselves to something else because then we can't do help the something else or someone else anyway. You know? Oh my God, how true that is. Can we put it on poster boards everywhere? It is so important. It's really, and, and we don't, we can't stop and think where we're in, in the rut. That's the problem. And there's not enough preparation. As you said, no one, no one prepares us for these major crises that hit us during life. And they're major. They're major. And then you start questioning love. Is love real love or is love just when we feel good in the relationship? Right. Yeah, I definitely have questioned that as well. Yeah. Because it's so hard. So like what 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 is the me in it? Like where is the you love me? for what I am or do you love me only when I'm happy and smiley and can give you the proper love back? Like, how does that work? And it's a very complex question. I'm actually interviewing somebody that talks about it in a few weeks because it fascinates me because you can have such a deep connection, even to a child. Just think about it. You you held that child in utero for nine months. You went through child labor. You went through extreme fatigue or not sleeping. I don't know if you had the nausea part. We go through so much and then it comes out and we want to love it so badly. I had the same thing with my first. It was very hard for me to connect to him because he was colicky. I wasn't nursing well. I never had enough milk and I was resentful. I was angry. I didn't connect to him. I'm like, I'm never going to love this child. I'm never going to love him. And I remember at, at like three months in, I said to my husband, I said, Ari, listen here, either you wake up for him every night or I'm done because I cannot do day and night because I'm going to go crazy. And I didn't feel that mother, I wasn't motherly at all. I didn't feel that, that. I was so excited to become a mother, but I didn't feel like what everybody's talking about. What, what, where's this excitement? So you you carry this baby and you feel like instantly you're going to love it. But where's the love? Where's that emotion? It's so mm -hmm. complex. It's something that I really, I don't understand. And I wish I did because it's in so many relationships in life, you know, parents, children, like us to our parents, like abandonment sometimes, like where do we feel that we're connecting the real love, unconditional love. Is there such a thing as unconditional love? Is there? It's hard to know, right? Yeah. With mental health. I'm saying with mental health, I think it's a very deep question because is there unconditional love with mental health? I think, yeah, I think it's a really good question. And, but I also think even beyond that. So Brené Brown says, you can only love someone else as much as you love yourself. And right. she says, people come back to her and they say, no, but you don't understand. Like I have a child and I love them unconditionally more than I've ever loved anyone else in my entire life. And mm -hmm. I definitely love them more than I love myself. And you don't understand. And she says, come back to me when they're a teenager <laughs> because your, your teenage child will reflect back to you all the things that you don't love about yourself. Oh and then God. tell me, how you go. Oh my and God. I really love that because yes. I think, I mean, I think it's so true. So and so true. You know, so then if we talk about unconditional love, like maybe it comes down in some ways to how much we're able to love ourselves. Mm. But then, you know, with mental health, I think it is different too because 
it's tiring and sad and scary and lonely to be a carer of someone who has mental health issues. I can see that people can reach the end of their ability to do it. And it doesn't mean that they don't love you. It just means that they they just lo- they lost the life or something like that. Could it be like there's like he said to you, "Where's the Samantha I married?" Yeah. It was one of my biggest fears that my husband will leave me. Cause, and, I, and I don't think I would blame him. I would be hurt and devastated. But I, would, I think, I don't know if I would be able to do it because it's really difficult. It's really difficult to stay in the happy place or in the bright place when there, there's no connection. Did you have connection? Did you have moments of happiness through the years after you gave Oh, yeah, we did. We did. Um, you know, and it wasn't probably just the postnatal depression that caused the breakup as well. Like we were, had had some issues before, but that's, you know, I think like every relationship, right? Like relationships have issues because if you're spending your life with somebody, stuff right. comes up. Right. So yeah, we did, you know, we, we were always really, really good friends. So I thought that after we got divorced, we would be able to do that as well mm-hmm. because the friendship was always such a great part of our marriage. Mm-hmm. But for me, there's still too much hurt. Yeah, there is hurt. There yeah. is hurt. I hope you'll be able to come to um, real healing of forgiving yourself because I feel, and maybe I'm wrong, but maybe you feel like it was your fault and you need to forgive yourself for being who you are and accepting, mm-hmm. as Brene, said, Brene Brown said, like loving who you are and accepting who you are and and there's a reason, and I know that it's so hard to know that there's a reason for everything. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, especially when you have a little child. He was three when his father left. Almost three, yeah. Almost three. That's, that's, uh, it's very, very difficult. But, yeah, it's, um, so it's funny too, because I actually have like, I was brought up in a family. I have a brother and a sister and my parents were very much in love right up until when my dad died. And, um, and I was brought up with the value system that, family is the most important thing mm-hmm. and you, you know me and my brother used to fight when we were kids and dad would say you know family is the most important thing you guys have to find a way to be friends with each other it's so important and, and so I have these really instilled beliefs that mm-hmm. family is really important and now you know I have just one son who comes from divorced parents mm-hmm. and you know he won't have any full siblings he might have a half but no, no siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, like grappling with that has been hard. And then also I feel like he was so young. It feels like embarrassing, you know, <laughs> like he was so young. Of course it was hard then. He was so mm-hmm. young. Yeah. And it, the shame around it is an interesting one because mm-hmm. the only thing to do is bring it into the light. But yeah, yeah I was embarrassed by breaking up when he was so young. <laughs> okay. But you tried your best, I'm sure. I'm sure you guys went to therapy and you tried and there was conversation. I wanted to, when you brought up, up a point that I want to ask you about, you said your mother suffered from depression and your parents had, they were in love up to your, when your father passed away. How, so your father's a hero. Yeah, it's really true. I've talked to my sister about that. The dad died when he was 56. I was 20. Um, so he was very young and yeah. my sister was 16. And we've talked about the fact that dad died as yeah this hero, like off on a pedestal. And mum had a whole life then after that with her kids and trying to raise us on her own. And it was very tough, I think, for her to 
compete with the, the memory of somebody else, memory of our dad. But how did he stay with her so in love with her depression and her mental illness? I mean, I think part of it is probably just their value, his values around family, like family is forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like mum was, you know, oh, it's not like she had a lot of, she had postpartum depression after she had my brother, but it's not like she was, you know, they had a full, happy, vibrant life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it didn't didn't stop them doing anything or being anything and they were just totally in love with each other. Mm-hmm. And so I think it just was like well, sometimes she needs more support and that was it. And he showed up. But also, you know, I was a kid. I was 20 when he died. So I don't really know what how they managed that. I don't really have any any insight into that. I just know that outwardly they were very much in love and mum was you know, really devastated when dad died. But he, he also was like outwardly very much in love with her right wow. until when he died. That's so beautiful. Yeah. It's it's beautiful to know that they there that there are people there that can support and love and see beyond. And because life is hard. Life is hard and it's not Hollywood um, movies that everything is beautiful and rosy and happy and cuddly. Like there's so much stresses and I think true love is going through the journey together. And when someone is down, being down with them and when someone is up to really be up with them and being okay with not being okay, because it's really, really hard. It can be really, really, really hard. I want to, I I do, I could go for a while speaking about postpartum, but I want to give the audience a few nuggets that what do you wish you knew before that you think that would make the whole journey end up differently? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it would make it any different, but the things that I would do the same or change are... Um, one is like no amount of support is too much support. Mm. So get all the help that you need to make, make it possible for you to get through whatever period you're going through. And so obviously sometimes we're limited financially by that, but if you can get cleaners, if you can order food delivery, um, you know, like practical stuff on top or bring fat, get family to help or friends to help and like practical stuff that means you're not focused on trying to make dinner and do the washing but you can actually focus on healing Mm -hmm. i think that's a big one like allow help and also allow that allow that emotional help so so i suppose tip number two would be do all the therapies (laughs) so i think beyond traditional talk therapy there are a lot of different types of therapies that are really beneficial and helpful and worth exploring and if you try something and it doesn't really work well it doesn't matter just try something else because uh, so much about ther- the therapeutic relationship is the actual connection between the therapist and the patient, mm-hmm. um, therapist in whatever kind of therapy you're, you're doing. Um, and so I would say really explore that until you find someone where you really feel uh, an impact from the work, from working with them. Mm-hmm. Be as open as you can be. So I actually found it really helpful that I talked to people about it and was really open about what was going on. I think those, I think that's it. Time. That's, yeah. Time is also a great healer. Right. And I would add to all of that, which I think the first one is super important, by the way, reduce the stress. You're so stressed as it is, reduce the stress. At the end of the day, you won't think about the money down the line or or ask for help for a friend, for a mother, for a sister, for a neighbor. If somebody offers, say yes. Don't be afraid to say yes. Say yes, yes exactly. Accept yes. all the help that yes, yes. And if somebody says to you, how can I help? It actually could be helpful to have a list of things. So in the moment, you don't have to think of it because the mental load of thinking of how someone can help can be quite hard. Overwhelming. But if you, 
if you keep a sort of running list of the things that you're having to do that you're finding hard, then someone says, can I help? And you're like, here's my list of things that I'm finding hard. Mm. Can you please pick one of them to do? Yeah. Um, so like actually take people up on their offers because usually people just don't quite know what to offer. Right. You know, it's, and it's an empty offer. It's that they're like, let me know. I don't know what you need. You let me know. Right. But it right. can feel hard to let someone know. Right. And I think the most important thing is if you're feeling that something's off, don't be in shame of going and finding out. Don't be in denial. Go to a doctor, look online, join a group, find out if something's wrong. Don't be the hero that's going to beat it because it could be dangerous for the baby. It can be dangerous for yourself. If you have other children, it can be dangerous for the other children. And it can and beyond the danger, it really just affects how much you connect with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And why, like, I know there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of stigma and there's a lot of fear, medication, no, I'm okay. Will I ever get out of it? But if it's there, it's there. And you can't yeah. escape it. You can't escape it. And you have to take care of it. If it's there, you really have to take care of it. So... Those are very, very, very helpful tips. Thank you. I want to end in a happy note because I feel like <laughs> this was a very difficult conversation for you and for me to, to see. And I feel like there's so much more that we can speak about. I want to hear how you turned your life around and you started what you're doing now with all this trauma that you went through. You didn't stay in bed. You didn't say, poor me. You didn't play the victim. And you said, I'm going to do something and I'm going to change something. I'm going to create a new ending to the, my story. So I want to hear about this new journey of your podcast that's going to, I believe, going to take you way, way, way far <laughs> and really change to a beautiful end of the story. Yeah. Well, so I mean, there, for sure, there has been a period where I have not had really the energy to do very much at all except just focus on healing. Um, and I think probably it was helpful to just acknowledge that and do that. So I did, um, I was, um, I started, I got a new job like not long after um, my breakup. So I started working full time um, and just focused on work and my son and, and doing the self-care things, which for me are like seeing my friends, making sure I get enough sleep, getting to the gym. Um, I did find the things that were really helpful emotionally supportive. Actually, this is another tip is that moving your body. I found the gym for me, I go to a really small gym. It's a community. The number of times I walked in crying and walked out smiling was actually really yeah. phenomenal over the last couple of years. Yeah. So that is a, a really big one, I think. Um, I think that I... You got a new job. Yeah. And then, and then I sort of got another different contract and, and then I think I just knew, you know, like I, this couldn't be the end of, this couldn't be my whole story. Like there's, I want to live an interesting life. Mm -hmm. And while I think it can be interesting to be brave in the sharing of our stories, I also wanted to, to really do something like change something, you know, like impact something. And so I, I really deliberately moved into diversity and inclusion consulting. And so I've just recently left a job doing that and started up my own consulting and coaching practice. Nice. Um, so the, the coaching is with women who are working in corporate jobs on how to negotiate for pay rises and flex and be seen in the workplace and set boundaries. And, and the consulting work is, you know, setting up, um, female leadership development programs for industry bodies and um, doing, you know, unconscious bias training and inclusive leadership training in workplaces. Um, and a lot of that actually 
it, I think I had I started the podcast before I moved into the diversity space in terms of in in work. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine who does a really phenomenal career transition coaching stuff, I was talking to her and she said, I think maybe you would do well with the podcast. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really, I was like, oh, I don't know how to do that. And and she kind of convinced me to do it. I just interviewed a friend sitting across my dining room table and came off the call air punching like, that was the best. <laughs> so, so that podcast is called Women at Work with Samantha Sutherland. And I've got over 60,000 downloads now. And it's I just have conversations with working mothers around how they manage the juggle, how they get, how they sort everything out in their life. And um, it's really been just an amazing journey to be on, like seeing it grow. And and I've had some quite high profile guests on, just been brave asking them to come on and they've all said yes. Mm. And so in fact, you know, there's a, I think it's a book called 100 Rejections. The idea being that you're actually seeking 100 rejections by being audacious in the things you ask for. And I thought that's actually a great goal for my podcast is 100 rejections from potential guests because that will get me asking, you know, really high profile people that, um, you know, people want to hear more about that. I'd love for them to listen there. And I just think, you know, if I can end with a a story of my own that I really love, which is I had, I, I sometimes feel like I missed out on having a baby because I found that period so tough and I wasn't really lucid during it. And I definitely didn't feel like that newborn bubble that people talk about but now I have an almost six-year-old and we have so much fun together oh, and I have I have friends who talk about yelling at their kids all the time and stuff and they're like I never yell at him I never do I never hit the end of my tether with him and we have I love hanging out with him and we have such an amazing bond and you know I he comes into my bed pretty much every night and I don't mind it's just me here anyway and um you know gives me a cuddle and and the other night he rolled over and he gave me a kiss and he was like I love you so much, mommy. (laughs) And I think, you know, from all the pain, I think probably in a way the work that I did on myself to heal and feel everything and be okay with emotion and, and try and recover has contributed to me being able to have that kind of relationship with him now. So I feel really grateful for that. What a beautiful story. That is so important to know, by the way. Thank you for sharing that because sometimes we have to remember that it's the journey is never perfect all the time. So if you if it's hard in the beginning, it might get better in the middle. If it's hard in the middle, it might be get better at the end. But you're gonna have a chance. You're gonna have a chance to connect. You're gonna have a chance to shine, and you're gonna have a chance. I think it's much better now. Like babies can't really connect with us, really. Like, what can they, they smile? Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't connect to babies. I personally don't connect to babies. I don't know what it is. I love hanging out with my children, so I so get what you're saying. But that is such an important message. Be patient. Your time is going to come. Don't give up just because the now is hard. Be patient. Something good is going to happen. And write the end of your story the way you want it to end. And it's so incredible that you started your career change and started the successful podcast. And I think through your listening to other women's amazing stories, things are going to shift by you and you're going to find that healing spot. You will find it. And maybe you needed to go through this in order to heal. Who knows? Really, who knows what, what, what will bring next? But it sounds phenomenal. Is this your profession? Is that what your profession was, coaching women? No. So, my, I mean, my career has taken a bit of a meander, but m- most recently I was working in diversity and inclusion consulting, but for a small consultancy. And, and I did a bit of coaching with that. And I have done coaching 
for probably the last six years I've done coaching, but um, the amount of coaching has ramped up and down depending on my other work obligations. So mm-hmm. now I'm actually focusing on it more and actually creating space for it deliberately. And you probably love it. Yeah, yeah. You look like a phenomenal coach. Like you give <laughs> space for the other person to connect to themselves and accept them for who they are. And you probably give them so much ability to find their direction wherever they're going. I could see that. That's that's incredible. So you said the podcast name is Mom at Mom at Women work. Women at Work. Women at Women at Work. Okay. Okay, fine. So we'll have that in the show notes. I'm definitely going to go listen to it now. <laughs> I want to hear it. Last question is what does hope mean to you? Oh. Well, that there's always a chance to turn it around. So the story's never finished. Your story's not finished yet. I sometimes take that to the day isn't over yet. Mm. You've still got the rest of the afternoon. You've still got the rest of the week, the month, the year. You've still got the rest. Right. That's nice. Okay. So you you look like you're full of hope. (laughs) You really went through a lot in life, a lot, but it's amazing that you're here smiling, even though you can go through pain and tears, but you you choose life. You choose hope. you You choose courage. You choose to be in the now, which is incredible really incredible. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for being vulnerable. I hope we didn't go too deep into your pain. I really hope. Oh no, I'm I'm totally comfortable. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. And I'm sorry that I made you cry through the conversation. I'm sorry about that. And, um, and I hope you, you really give other women out there, either if they're before giving birth or after, or they're going through the process of not knowing the ability to seek help and to find support and to hold on to hope and to to do the right thing, to really do the right thing for the baby, for the relationship, for you as the mom, and to and to be okay when we're fragile because giving birth and becoming a mom is huge, really, really huge. Anyway, thank you, Samantha, for giving us so much time. It's the beginning of your day. It's the end of my day. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for tuning in. If somebody wants to reach out to you, are you okay with them reaching out to you, Samantha? Absolutely. So my website is samanthasutherland.com.au and you can email me directly at samantha at samanthasutherland.com.au. Okay. If you have any questions, she looks like a lovely, lovely, lovely lady and she'll be there to help. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or any feedback or if you want to be a part of this show this podcast please reach out to hope to recharge.com on the website you can contact us there or you can join our community we would love for everybody to join our community and talk about how we can break the stigma how we can live beyond depression and anxiety how we can support one another with depression and anxiety and how we can bring more conversation to this topic so join us on the conversation hope to recharge the community on facebook hope all is well have a wonderful day, night, morning, evening, rest of the week. Thank you for joining us, everybody. Take care. I would like to take this opportunity to thank betterhelp.com that is helping our listeners access therapy through an online platform that's easy to access through a phone, computer, tablet. You can choose your therapist and it is super affordable. No matter where you are in the world, if you want a licensed therapist, just go to betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. You will get a 10% off 
on your first month. Try it out. If you don't like your therapist, there's so many more that you can choose from. And it goes by category. It's so awesome. If you want a relationship therapist or do you want an anxiety therapist, you want a depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, anything that you want, there's a category of therapists that specialize in exactly what you need. And they really help you find the therapist you need. So go to betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P forward slash hope to recharge. Take advantage of this amazing offer and get the help you need. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.